Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Lucien Cook, who is Head of Residential Research at Savills and one of the industry's most widely quoted commentators. So welcome to the podcast, Lucien, and thank you for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I think we're going to have some fun. I think we are. And it's been a while since we spoke. So last time you joined me on the podcast, it was in the summer of 2019. And at that point, the question that everybody was asking was, what impact will Brexit have on the housing market? Now, the question of the day is, what impact COVID-19 will have on the housing market? So can you give a quick overview of some of the key changes that you're seeing happening now and which ones you think will become entrenched and which ones will reverse, both in terms of, I guess, supply and demand for different geographies and asset types? Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, the first thing really, isn't it, is that the risks that Brexit posed or the disruption that Brexit posed has slightly paled into insignificance to the impact which COVID has had on our day-to-day lives. And I think in some respects, that that was sort of mirrored in the concerns for the housing market at the onset of COVID. And we, like a lot of other commentators and forecasters, were forecasting that it would have an impact on prices. But this, if you like, has been the first recessionary environment that we've experienced where we haven't seen a downturn in the housing market. And I think that really reflects the unique circumstances of COVID and a bit of a reaction to the circumstances of lockdown, where if you think about it, you've had this very, very low interest rate environment. You didn't have strong house price growth coming into the pandemic. And you've had significant rapid government support to jobs and indeed to the housing market. And what that's meant is you haven't had for sales hitting the market to drive down prices. And there has been a part of society for whom the economic impact has been pretty insulated against that. And that means the market's been driven by the haves rather than the have-nots. And the haves have basically reassessed their housing needs. And so in doing so, they've been much more encouraged, for example, to upsize And in doing that, that's meant a significant increase in transactional activity. That's lasted right through the second half of 2020 at a slightly lesser pace, but still above pre-pandemic norms in the first couple of months of this year. And, And in that sort of reassessment of housing need, it's been about space. It's been about access to the countryside. And generally, it's sort of favored if you like, those with a bit of housing wealth behind them looking to upsize a bit more than, say, first-time buyers. Geographically, how's it played out? Well, the markets that have been strongest and seen the biggest increase in activity have been the commuter zone, the fringes of the commuter zone, because people have basically thought with, say, with London, I'm going to come into London less often. I'll accept a longer commute for the time that I'm going in. So the commuter zone, the fringes of the commuter zone. And then I think with a slightly different buyer group, it's been those classic lifestyle relocation markets. So places like the Cotswolds, like North Devon, Norfolk, Rydale, up in North Yorkshire, the lakes, you know, a lot of those which traditionally would have been second home locations. So the UK housing market last year, house price growth of 7.3%. I think at the end of February, it's running at 6.9. Who would have expected that? But it does just reflect the unique circumstances that we've been in. It's been great because for someone who's been studying the housing market sort of in depth for 14 years, again, it's taught me something new and it never has the power to surprise. 
And so from that, will that kind of de-urbanisation effectively, do you think that will become quite entrenched or do you think it will reverse at some point going forward? Yeah, so I mean, I suspect it will run on for a period. And the reason why I think that's the case is because we've had lockdown one, lockdown two, lockdown three. And that quite prolonged period of lockdown three just means the experience of living at home, working at home, schooling at home has become a bit more embedded in our mind. And the memory of that will last a little bit longer. And so as we come out of the lockdowns, as you start to see social distancing eased, I think people will still be looking for that potential to upsize. And they will, to do that, they often look into the commuter zone to find more space. For example, there's a lot more detached housing in the southeast of England than there is even in the suburbs of London. So you can sort of see that continuing for a period. But I don't think, you know, you shouldn't write off some of the big cities as well, because a lot of what you've seen has been quite pandemic specific. And at some point, a lot of this really depends on the future office, but you are going to go back to work. You're not necessarily going to go back to the office for as many days a week, but that will bring the young back into the cities. And I think it would also mean that people say, okay, if I need a bit more space, I'm actually going to do it for example, in the traditional wealth corridors of London or the traditional migration corridors of London as much as as move a bit further out. So it's going to be some and some. And where the equilibrium sits, I think really depends on how our working practices change permanently or not. And of course, that at the moment is the most difficult thing for anybody really to pin down. Mm. Really, really interesting. I guess there is another side of it, which is that, you know, certainly for the young, a lot of the reason for living in cities is not all entirely about work. There's two other really important things. One is affordability and the other is social group. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few things in there. So I think the experience for the young actually has been quite different. So whilst we've seen the house prices rise in a recessionary environment because of pandemic-specific factors... I think the rental market's done different things because of pandemic-specific factors. So in London, you've seen rents fall. I think to the end of November, annual rental falls for about 6% in London. You know, and there, you've had a very different reaction. So you've had less demand from corporates, less demand from students, particularly international students. And a lot of those younger sharers, so people who are sharing rental accommodation, have got to the end of their tenancy. And they said, I don't necessarily need to be in London for the next six months or Manchester or Birmingham or Bristol or wherever it might be. I don't need to bear those housing costs. Mum and dad have got internet and they'll feed me. And so actually, a lot of them have just relocated back to wherever their parents were. And that's just created a supply-demand imbalance in the rental market. And in city centres, it's put downward pressure on rents. Now, again, what you have to look at there is, what of that is specific to the pandemic? And therefore, what of that unwinds as you get back to something approaching normality? And I think just the desire to be in the office, the desire still to be close to city centres for all the social benefits that it brings... All of those things then come back into play as you start to see social distancing relax and you spend more time in the office. You know, the long-term impact on rents is much more about what has this done to the real economy? What's this likely to do to income growth prospects? So I think you'll have a lot of those rental falls that you've seen over the course of the pandemic will unwind or snap back relatively quickly, but the growth above and beyond that will be slowed by the economic impact that we've had in terms of people's expectations around their earnings. So, I mean, really different things going on for different parts of society. Yeah. And you've sort of started to hit on my next question, which is around housing market forecast. So you're something of an expert in this field. What do you think will happen in terms of both house prices and rents over the next, say, three to five years? 
in London, but also in different regions in different counties. Yeah. So, I mean, very kind of you to say I'm something of an expert around this. You know, we widely regard ourselves at Savills or, we, or we're very proud of our record of being the least inaccurate forecaster of house prices. You know, this is not an exact science. And anyone who tells you that they can get to a figure rounded to one decimal point over a five-year figure with any degree of accuracy is frankly is pulling your leg. What you're trying to do is to give intelligent commentary with the circumstances as they sit to try and work out what's going to happen to house prices over the next five years. I mean, actually, I think all of the indications from the beginning of this year are that house prices will rise again. And I think there's a few reasons for that. We were concerned that 2021 would be strong first half before the stamp duty holiday ended, weak in the middle as unemployment peaked. And then as you got that vaccination program running through, a return to a bit more of a return to normality consumer confidence will pick up and that would mean house price growth at the end of the year. So a soft middle bookended by two periods of price growth. And we thought prices over the course of the year wouldn't move in totality. In reality, what's happened is we've had an extension of the stamp duty holiday. We've had an extension of furloughing, which is critical around those unemployment forecasts. And I think you know those two things primarily mean that period of soft in the middle is shortened and is likely to be less deep. And as a consequence, whereas we thought prices would be 0% in 2021, we're now saying they're going to be plus four. We think across the country as a whole, there's capacity for about 20 to 21% house price growth without really impinging on affordability. And it's all about mortgage affordability. And in that respect, the price growth that we saw last year has almost been absorbed by this continuation of a low interest rate environment and the fact that that's expected to continue for quite a long period. So that means, for example, the cost of five-year money is incredibly low and the cost of money will only go up very gradually over the period of the next five years. And in fact, it forecasts, we forecast have base rates where they are for quite a prolonged period. And that means despite the price growth of last year, you've still got that capacity for 20% price growth. But there will inevitably be some regional variation. You know, the markets at this point in the housing market cycle, you would expect the Midlands and the North to deliver the strongest house price growth because their house price to household income ratios are less stretched, and London and the Southeast to show relatively lower levels of growth. That's been, again, like a lot of things, temporarily disrupted by the pandemic. But I think as you start to see some of those lifestyle drivers, ebb away a little bit, you'll start to see the economics come back into play. And therefore, you will almost like resume normal service. Midlands and the North outperforming, London and the Southeast taking a bit of a backseat in price growth. So that's broadly what we think will be. And you know, our house price forecasts range from, say, over the next five years, 29% across the northwest of England to in London, something between 12 and 13%. So you can sort of see how that happens. Rents, I think with the fact that you've got some catch-up in rents because of the pandemic-specific factors, we're forecasting that across the country as a whole, rents might go up by around 17%. So that's about the same as we have with income growth. In London, I think you'll find that it will outpace that income growth. And the reason for that is because you've had this dip in rents because of pandemic-specific factors. So you've got a bit of a capacity for catch-up. Very, very interesting. Okay. And I guess to the point about very low interest rates that aren't looking to go anywhere in an upward direction anytime soon, one of the sort of consequences of this is a lot of investors are looking for 
a higher income from some other form of investment. And I guess one of the most interesting trends in relation to this in the market at the moment is the growth in investor appetite from institutions for private rental sector and also other forms of housing assets. They call it the beds market. Then I guess the main reason for this is partly because the housing market offers bond-like security, but also with those attractive yields and growth. So what kind of yields the clients that you as a company target in the current environment and what kind of growth is expected? Yeah, so I think there is a real distinction, isn't there, between the private investor with a mortgage and the institutions. You know, the private investor with a mortgage has probably had, I think they've fallen into two camps. You've had those who've been slightly stung by rent arrears or non-payment of rent, who were, even before the pandemic, slightly struggling to make the maths stack up with less tax relief. And I think for those people, you will continue to see some people exit the sector or rationalize their portfolios. Then on the other hand, you've got those with a slightly bigger portfolio, slightly less debt, who actually have been able to ride the storm far more effectively and will see the low interest rate environment as an opportunity to invest more. So that's kind of the private investor, I think, in two camps. The institutions, as you say, are very much in it for the long term. For them, it is largely about having secure income returns over a prolonged period. The capital growth piece is generally less of a driver for them. It's it's actually about that secure income stream, which is diversified across a range of tenants, but which you need to tap into through scale. Now, given that there aren't big existing residential portfolios readily available on the market, as we know, most of them have looked to do it through built-to-rent multifamily, single family, whichever way it is, but it's about purpose-built rental accommodation. And their yields vary a bit, actually. Their yield requirements vary a bit. In London, you know, it might well be somewhere between three and a half and four percent. In Manchester, it might be four and a half to five. So again, you're getting some of that regional valuation, but that probably should give you a bit of an indication of sort of those key yield requirements which they have. But what they I think in the past five years, they become much more adept at knowing what product they want to offer, which target markets they want to go for. And I think they've widened the target markets that they've looked at. So for example, single family built to rent at the moment seems to be flavor of the month. So that is small family houses, sometimes in suburban locations, less turnover of tenants, and therefore less refurbishment costs and lower void rates. And it's the part of the rental market where you continue to see growing demand. So that I think has been and continues to be an interesting market. And you're going to see some of the retrenchments from the private investor that we've talked about. I think that continues to open up quite a big opportunity for those institutional investors. And they sort of look across the pond at what's happened in the US. They might look to Europe to see how strong and deep that market is within Germany. And that, I think, has started to set their aspirations. But they've generally now worked out to a pretty reasonable degree what sort of planning you need, what operational platforms you need, what you can do at scale and get the take-up rates at pace. And, And just generally, a lot of the delivery and operational models that you need to make that work that five, six years ago, they were only just beginning to grapple with. So it's a rapidly maturing sector. And I think given what they've seen happen in some of the other commercial investment space, pressures on retail, bit of uncertainty about what the office looks like at the moment, you know, beds and sheds, So the thing about logistics is the other one where you've got that growth prospect. Beds and sheds have definitely been the flavor of the month. Hmm. And I guess yields of sort of three and a half to four and a half percent or four and a half to 
5.5%. Like to me, as an outside non-built to rent focused investor, obviously we focus mostly on, well, we focus entirely on built assets. To me, that yield always seems quite low given the amount of risk you have to take on and how long you have to wait for it. But I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of, like you said, diversifying into different types of housing. Because if you think about the build to rent sector, up till quite recently, it's mostly been focused on, like you said, these big blocks of flats, often in city centres like London and Manchester. And actually, if you look at where demand is growing, it's not that, like you said. So how do you see institutional appetite being directed then? You sort of alluded to it already, but will the shift into building single units grow? What do you think? How will institutions bridge the gap towards the mainstream private rental sector? Yeah, I mean, I think they will just become more diversified in their offering, which so that they can do it at scale. I think they are increasingly clear about what the size of individual rental markets are, because as we know, you know, like anything, there isn't a single rental market. It's actually spread across what quite a wide socioeconomic profile. And it's about as it is with your investment portfolio, matching the product to where the market demand is and where there's depth of market demand. And so that's where I think you will see the bulk of the evolution of this. In terms of that sort of yield equation, of course, even at three and a half, four and a half percent, you are getting a pretty decent margin above cost of funds. And for a lot of, for example, the pension companies, you know, they are often looking at pension liabilities which have matured quite a lot. So they are looking for that security of income stream at this point, rather, if you like, than the higher risk, higher returns that historically they might have looked for. So their ability to match their longer term liabilities with a secure income stream is one of the things I think which has driven investment against the context that it looks, it still looks like there's a supply demand imbalance in that market, you know, Mm -hmm. partly because you've still got high deposits for first-time buyers, partly because there's a generation that sort of missed out in terms of getting on the housing ladder, and partly because the private landlord, who, if you like, has provided a lot of that private rental accommodation in the past, is being squeezed through regulation, taxation, and will have taken a bit of a hit in some cases to their experience of the pandemic. So for them, for example, you know, you've got things going on through regulation like renters reform, the abolition of Section 21, inability to get back the property on two months notice. You know, that probably hurts the private investor more because their ultimate get out is to get vacant possession back and sell it. And if it's more difficult for them to do that, if they haven't got quite the same liquidity of their assets, or if they're worried about getting stuck with what they perceive to be a problem tenant, then you just start to see that risk return trade-off change a bit. Whereas if you're a big institutional investor, actually what you like is the security of the income stream. You can live with that. You're much happier with that. You're much more comfortable with that. So I think that's one of the things that's behind it. Do you think the risk is higher for private investors? It depends, doesn't it? I mean, I think the thing for the institutions, the big advantage they've got is if they're investing at scale, then the tenant-specific risk, they can diversify across quite a wide portfolio. If you're a private landlord with three units and two of them are vacant, it's hurting you pretty hard. Well, I completely agree with that on the smaller portfolios, yeah. I think there's something in between, like you were saying, that kind of private investor with a bigger portfolio. I think they're more comfortable. I think they're more likely Mm -hmm. to say, actually, do you know what? Interest rates are going to stay lower for longer. I can still make a margin. I can still make a cash margin over this and I kind of buy into the capital growth story. And so for those guys, I think, you know, you will find that they remain investment hungry. Mm. But it's the other group who are much more highly leveraged and more exposed to some of that regulatory change where I think, you know, you will continue to see a little bit of pressure. And I suppose going back to that, the the SME investor really, 
you'll be able to correct me on this statistic, I'm sure, but something like 95% of the private rental sector is assets worth less than 5 million. I mean, that's definitely my focus from a business perspective. So that's the market I know much better than the larger schemes. One of the reasons that larger institutions don't really get involved with this market very much is that it's quite inefficient for them to scale down to this size of property. What do you think are the other reasons why institutions don't invest in this space and what would need to happen to facilitate investment in the bulk of the housing market? I think it is starting now, but more broadly. I think you need to do it at scale, don't you? I think, And the reason for the institutions to do it at scale is that they want to get the efficiencies through things like operational platforms to be able to do it. And actually, look, their liabilities are quite big. And if you're in a big institution and you're trying to match a pension liability or similar, you're going to probably be doing that quite significant volumes. And to diversify your risk away from other assets in what is quite a big investment universe, you've kind of got to really go for it. So I think that's probably where that one sits. And I think, you know, the private investor, on the other hand, it is unusual for people to have just the capital available to build up a portfolio of that scale of that sort of medium sized scale of say 5 million or whatever it might be. You know, you've got to be pretty seriously in that game with quite a lot of wealth behind you to make sure you've got enough equity in it to make the math stack up. So, you know, you can see that there's the bit that falls in between. And I think that is partly where there's this opportunity for the slightly more niche funds who know the stock that they're dealing with, who can sort of access, open access to this investment opportunity and give some of the diversification around different assets by getting people into the fund. And it's the funds that sort of gives you the diversification, gets rid of some of your, um, or diversifies away some of the risk. Very interesting. And another of your areas of expertise is government policy on housing. Certainly in my day-to-day work, this is, I see this as being probably one of the most important themes that affects what works and what doesn't. And we talked about it earlier, things like stamp duty changes that can completely change the game in terms of performance of the market. But there's so many other things, whether it's, yeah, like you said, Section 21, how long that is operational, Section 24 affecting income taxes, so much stuff that really fundamentally affects the viability of the investment. What new policies do you think are next on the agenda that will influence how residential property investments perform? Yeah, so for me, the big one is energy performance which some people might be quite surprised by. But, you know, you look at that in a couple of ways. Already, we have a requirement for all private rented stock to be a minimum of EPCE banded or rated. The government consultation has been out to increase that or to tighten that to EPCC. And in doing so, they will, if you like, give you less wriggle room around the exemption. So previously, you'd get a five-year exemption if it was going to cost you more than three and a half grand. If they push that up to 10 grand, then you can start to see some latent liabilities on landlords increase. And the consultation documents there are very clear. You know, They're saying, if that doesn't work, then we will start going away from the quick wins around energy performance to some of the other stuff, which is more costly, gives you lesser return on your cash, but is still needed to get towards, I think they want everything EPC across the whole of the housing stock, EPCC by 2035 and zero carbon by 2050. So the pressure is going to come. And I don't think it's just going to come through the private rented sector. In some ways, private rented sector is kind of at the forefront of it because they can see how they can implement that through regulation. You're also going to see it through the lending market. So There's another government consultation out there on how they can influence energy performance at point of lending, whether it's a point of purchase or whether it's point of remortgage. And they're basically saying, look, let's start by getting the lenders 
to report on the EPC credentials of their portfolio. And then let's set some targets about lending for energy performance measures. And we'll start off and we'll make those voluntary to start with. But if they don't work, we'll go mandatory. And you can start to see that if you have a situation where the lenders are almost rationing their loan book so that it is more energy efficient or the properties are more energy efficient, you're not far there away from different lending criteria for different types of property. And so I think you'll see it A, through regulation and then also possibly through the lending environment. And that, I think, is going to be the next big sort of regulatory change that we see that will influence the private rented sector significantly. Mm, that's really, really interesting. And I think it'll be especially interesting with right now borrowing on housing going up in a generally upward trend. At what point does that get limited? And at what point do things start going a little bit wrong in the aftermath of, say, new regulations around lending to particularly inefficient properties? Because it could be a real problem there when you've made the most of the low interest rate environment, borrowed the maximum that the bank will lend you, and then all of a sudden come to refinance and realise you can't. Yeah. Or you've got a liability that you've got to fund out of cash to make sure that you're going to be EPC compliant. So I definitely think it should be a focus for all landlords now to get a good handle on what the latent liability is in their portfolio. You know, And that may mean that some of it you move around. You know, you may mm-hmm. say, I've got some very energy inefficient stock and the cost of that getting that up to the appropriate rating is so high that it's just not going to be viable for me in the future. So you, I think you will see it change. I think you will see it change in landlord behavior. And stop seeing sort of brown discount. Yeah, well, I mean, we already know. I mean, so I think there's a few ways that it plays out. You know, you could argue that it affects whether or not you can get the mortgage debt. You could also say if you've got lower heating costs, for example, for your tenants, it means more disposable income for rent. I think that's a bit intangible at the moment. But we've done some work on looking at energy performance certificates and average values. And it's very clear that for the least energy efficient properties, there is definitely a brown discount. And for the most energy efficient, there is also a green premium. It's the stuff in the middle So between sort of C and E ratings around that D where it doesn't move very much. And I think that's the bit that probably presents the challenges for the regulators. But brand discount, green premium, I think the maths certainly show that that exists at the moment. Very, very interesting. Okay. And now we're moving on to my favorite question. (laughs) So with all the data and research that you've got at your disposal and that you're leading, I can imagine you'd be able to make some very exciting investments personally. We sort of already discussed this before we started recording, but I would love to know firstly where you're putting your money in the housing market and how this has changed. But also, I guess, if that wasn't the case, what you would be investing. Yeah, so I am probably the most risk-averse person in the world, it has to be said. So actually, I moved house about 18 months ago, and we sort of bought, we're very lucky, we were fortunate to be able to buy sort of quite a nice detached house, taking on more mortgage debt. And I partly did that with the discipline to give me the financial discipline to save and pay down that mortgage debt. And we're going to be part of that generation, which I think is a bit of a change, we will say we will move up, if you like, to the aspiration of the home that we want to have the family in. And then when the family go, we'll downsize. And it's at that point of downsizing that we will take equity out of that property. And that will help fund our retirement. So that's the big grand cook plan without necessarily having a buy-to-let portfolio spread across the country. But again, as I say, you know, that's me um, as a risk averse. If I wasn't quite so risk averse, and actually if I was 
in that wider property investment game. I think given where we are in the cycle, you know, I would be saying there are higher yields on offer and greater prospects for capital growth in some of the markets of the Midlands and the North than, say, London and the Southeast. But there's one market in London, if you're wealthy enough, which I think offers really good value, and that's prime central London. So it's the very top end of the market in Kensington and Chelsea and Westminster. Prices there are 20% below where they were in 2014. It looks good value historically. It looks good value internationally. And the recovery has been held back because of the pandemic and the restrictions on international travel. So if you gave me a million quid and I had to place it anywhere, and it was one asset, it would be there. If it was lots of assets, then I would buy more of a portfolio, Midlands and the North. That's very, very interesting. And I'm glad you're singing from the same hymn sheet as me on the regional stuff, although possibly not Central London, but that's really, really interesting. And I guess if listeners want to find out more about you or to follow the research you're doing or even to work with Savills more broadly, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so and there's the traditional means, isn't there? So LinkedIn, fantastic. I try and post as much as I can on that. I just started posting our fortnightly market updates and insight. And then all of our research reports will be either shared by myself on LinkedIn or posted directly. Or alternatively, you can go to the Savills website. And for example, there you will find our recent forecast documents, both for the mainstream housing market, the prime housing market and the rental market. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. And thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure. Been fun. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.